Welcome to the Trilogy of Terror podcast. Hi, I'm Gore Blimey and welcome to the second episode of the Trilogy of Terror podcast, a podcast where I pick a film director and talk about three horror movies they've done. Last time we looked at Italian director Lamberto Bava and first off I want to say a big thanks for all the positive feedback. I even got a couple of great reviews on iTunes which was a brilliant surprise so thanks to Ruggalad and Pegs for those. I've also been getting some interesting suggestions for the show Like I said before, this is the first time I've ever done this, so I'm always happy to hear what you think or any tips you have, what you think works or could be improved. I've made a few tweaks already, and you might notice later. For example, I'll be including some movie trailers, if they're appropriate, a few audio clips, and also a couple of promos for other podcasts I really enjoy. Now, another thing. I know having a monthly podcast means there's a big gap between episodes. I suppose I was thinking of it like fast food. If you have it too often, it gets boring and it's not good for you. But now and again, it's still nice to get your hands on a Whopper. Or Big Mac or whatever. I'm sure you agree. So what I'm planning to do is release a mini episode in between the main ones, which will follow on from the last subject. So I might be discussing a remake or a sequel or something else related to that director or the three films. Hopefully it'll be fun, and we'll see how it goes. Anyway, back to this episode, looking at three films by Herschel Gordon-Lewis. But before that, here's a slightly shortened version of the trailer to one of his movies. Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to witness some scenes from the next attraction to play this theatre. This picture, truly one of the most unusual ever filmed, contains scenes which, under no circumstances should be viewed by anyone with a heart condition or anyone who is easily upset. We urgently recommend that if you are such a person or the parent of a young or impressionable child now in attendance, that you and the child leave the auditorium for the next 90 seconds. Herschel Gordon-Lewis's film career started off working with producer David F. Friedman, creating nudie cutie flicks like The Adventures of Lucky Pierre from 1961, which was a financial success. They also did a series of nudist films, a way to show TNA on the big screen at the time. And I did actually watch one of these called Nature's Playmates for research purposes. There seemed to be a lot of topless women on trampolines and men standing behind carefully placed pot plants. According to IMDB, the main actor from Bloodfeast was in it too, playing a nudist, though I don't remember seeing him. I guess he must have had a small part. Lewis and Friedman started looking for something they could offer that would be different to movies already out there, and went for the gimmick of lurid graphic gore. Their first splatter movie was Bloodfeast in 1963, which I'll be talking about in a moment. 
Lewis not only wrote it and directed it, he also created the score, and it was a big success in the drive-ins. So over the next couple of years, they repeated the format with 2000 Maniacs, the second film we'll be looking at, and Colour Me Blood Red, three films which are often described as the Blood Trilogy. When Friedman moved on, Lewis continued to make gore films, such as his vampire horror A Taste of Blood, and in 1967, The Gruesome Twosome, the only film I've known to include a long scene of conversation between two styrofoam heads with glued-on paper faces, and a mad granny who talks to a stuffed cat. Lewis didn't just stick to horror, mind you. He dabbled in other subjects, like juvenile delinquency, wife-swapping, birth control, and he even did a couple of films aimed at children. In 1970, he directed The Wizard of Gore, which is the third film we'll be talking about, and in 1972, The Gore Gore Girls, a comedy horror and the last film he did before leaving movies to return to marketing and copywriting. That is until 2002, 30 years later, when he returned to splatter movies with Blood Feast 2 All You Can Eat and again in 2009 for The Uh-Oh Show, about a TV game show where contestants lose limbs if they get answers wrong. Apparently, he's currently working on an anthology horror comedy called Blood Mania. The Trilogy of Terror Podcast. Blood Feast opens with a woman taking a bath while a radio newsflash tells us a killer is on the loose. Suddenly, Fuad Ramses appears, with a machete, badly dyed grey hair and eyebrows drawn on with felt-tip pens. He stabs her in the eye and chops her leg off, and this sets up the tone for the rest of the movie. Okay, enough of the bong 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 film score, and apologies to anyone who gets migraines easily. A pair of detectives are dealing with the case, and we meet them in their office, in the corner of an aircraft hangar, if the echoey sound is anything to go by. Now, one of these guys is Pete, who happens to be dating Suzette. She'll be having a big party later in the story, but more of that in a bit. Anyway, Pete is her boyfriend, and not, as I originally thought, her dad. Now, this serial killer case is a big one, it's huge, and these cops are so busy trying to solve it, they don't even have time for cheap innuendos. Well, Frank, this looks like one of those long, hard ones. Back to Suzette and the party. Her mum heads off to see the local cannibal caterer, Fuad Ramses, who we already met in the first scene, though obviously she doesn't know he's a psycho nutjob at the time. She asks his advice for unusual party food, and he stares hard and hypnotically at her, probably because she's dressed as a tangerine-coloured Edwardian lady. Yes, Mrs. Fremont. I do cater to unusual affairs. What do you consider to be unusual? Oh, I don't know. What do you recommend? Have you ever had... An Egyptian feast? Why, that would be fine. That would be perfect. My daughter, Suzette, is a student of Egyptian culture. We learn that Ramses is secretly cooking up a special blood feast in his back room. It's basically a bubbling cauldron of rubber body parts next to a gold statue, and stirring in bits and bobs of nubile young women is going to bring the goddess to life. But, of course, our crazy caterer needs his ingredients. 
there's a young couple making out on a beach. They decide they won't go home till it gets dark, which is odd because they're surrounded by complete darkness. We get an interesting shot of the boyfriend lowering his face down onto the camera as he goes in for a kiss. Okay, it's actually more funny than artistic, but Ramsay suddenly pops up and attacks them both, cutting out and stealing the girlfriend's brain. But luckily for the cops, the boyfriend has survived and is able to give them some valuable clues about the attacker. From his description, they're somehow able to deduce that the killer's an old man with strange glowing eyes. Though I'd have said he's about 30 and his eyes are normal apart from the drawn on brows. So he's possibly describing someone from a completely different horror film. Meanwhile, it turns out Detective Pete has a thing for mummies. And Suzette does too. They go to an Egyptology lecture described so clearly you literally can see a sacrifice. I suppose it's a bit like one of those reenactments on Crime Watch, but with a smoke machine and someone wafting a snake in a woman's face. And before anyone can get too distracted by the sight of ancient Egyptian gold strappy shoes and a beehive hairdo, the man cuts her heart out. If only my school history lessons were this engaging. We get a bit of not very convincing flirting between Suzette and Pete, where they both stand well apart with their arms firmly crossed over their chests. Pete offers Suzette a lift home because her mother gets frantic when she's out late at night. But that's fine because they walk out into the sunlight, then get into the car which drives off um, into the night. They stop off for a quick snog and a chat in a secluded spot. They set off again as the sun shines down on them. Blimey, the days must be short in that part of the world. Oh well, at least Suzette can feel safe and reassured that she's alone in a car in the middle of nowhere with a man who isn't at all a bit creepy. <laughs> you know, on second thoughts, you might be safer with the killer than you are with me. It's only later that Detective Pete has a sudden light bulb moment and immediately phones the Egyptology professor. Lucky he'd memorised the guy's home phone number somehow. The cops raid the back room of Ramsey's shop and we get the most effective shock of the film. They switch on the light to suddenly reveal the blood-covered body on a table right in front of the camera. Okay, once you look at it, you can see it's just a person with stage blood painted on them, but the surprise element is still pretty good. Finally, it's time for Suzette's party. Her guests have arrived and seem to be mostly middle-aged people. I guess her friends her own age are already there as part of the buffet. In the kitchen, Ramses casually asks Suzette to lie back on the formica and close her eyes to make an old man happy. I'm sure we've all heard that one before. Rather than finding it weird or creepy or even unhygienic, Suzette giggles and does as she's told, and Ramses raises the knife ready for the sacrificial strike. I won't spoil the ending here because it's completely bizarre and a whole lot funnier than it's meant to be, and the movie ends with a comedy punchline that will have you either laughing out loud or groaning. The acting overall isn't good, but to be fair, the cast includes people from nudie cutie movies and former Playmates of the Month, and it was shot in a matter of days. The script is full of unintentional laughs, though I have to say, that's what gives the movie a lot of its charm.
The music's mostly the bong 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 stuff we heard earlier, with a bit of whining cello and what sounds like a Wurlitzer organ. The camera work is amateurish, but it does try to be a bit inventive at times. It does have a go with Dutch angles, and the awkward face descending onto the lens kiss is mirrored quite nicely during the sacrifice on the kitchen worktop scene. The gore effects, when you look at them properly, are laughably bad. There's a lot of joke shop rubber limbs and butcher's offal going on. In the pre-credits attack, we see Ramsay stabbing and swinging the blade, and then we see the aftermath in all its lurid colour. And that's the clever bit here. The bright red of the blood against white suds and the blue bathtub is visually shocking, and it's a motif we see again and again during this film. Bright red blood set against blue. It's a pretty good way of making us think the gore is more gruesome than it actually is. The infamous tongue-pulling-out attack takes place on blue bedsheets. A woman is whipped and bleeding while wearing a blue dress. The history lecture sacrifice sequence has a blue backdrop, and so on. It's quite a short film, at only 67 minutes long, and it's the first of three Herschel Gordon Lewis works that are known as the Blood Trilogy, along with 2000 Maniacs and Colour Me Blood Red. It's got an unofficial sequel called Blood Diner from 1987, where two brothers run a restaurant and collect women's body parts to make a blood feast to awaken a goddess. But best of all, one of the main characters is a talking brain in a jam jar. If that sounds your cup of tea, I'll be talking about that in a mini-episode soon, so bear with me if you're interested to know more. Lewis himself made an official sequel, Blood Feast 2 All You Can Eat, in 2002, which is 39 years after the original, and it seems there's a remake due later this year, with a trailer already up on YouTube if you fancy a look. In the 1980s, when we had the video nasties panic in the UK, Blood Feast was the oldest film to appear in the original list of banned video titles. These days, I think people see it more as a so-bad-it's-good film, but it's easy to forget how important it actually was. It's often described as the first splatter movie. Now, there had been films before that contained gore, but not as the main or only reason people would go and see them. I mean, let's face it, they weren't going for the story or the characterizations. Most horror films at the time showed the before and after effects of violence without the gore, and suddenly, here's all the blood and guts all over the screen in the most vivid red you've ever seen. It's a proto-slasher film. It even has a psycho killer running around hacking up attractive women with a machete, 17 years before Jason Voorhees was even heard of, or his mother. And you could say it's the grandfather of films like the Hostel series. Herschel Gordon Lewis may have created this as a way to make a buck, and we might laugh at its enthusiastic failings. I certainly do. But for all its faults, it's a significant piece of horror cinema that's had a long-lasting influence right up to the films of today, as well as being a great bit of fun to watch. On to our second movie, 2000 Maniacs, with an exclamation mark. This was released the year after Blood Feast in 1964, and here's a shortened version of the trailer. You're all invited to a centennial celebration. What they were celebrating wasn't important, and it sounded like a heap of fun until 2,000 maniacs crazed for carnage started bathing an entire town in pulsing human blood. You'll see six young strangers doomed to slaughter by an ancient curse. And from his lips there came an awful sound. And from his lips there came an awful sound. 
brutal, evil, ghastly beyond belief, you'll see the most diabolical device ever contrived, designed solely for assassination by a town of madmen, insane with bloodlust. took a gun and he made the Yankees run, but he... 2,000 maniacs, gruesomely stained in blood color. Stonewall said, I'm a-giving you a dying man's request. I'm a-giving you a dying man's request. Yeah! Starring Playboy's favorite playmate, Connie Mason. Yeah! Oh, the South's gonna rise again. As the film opens, we find a couple of southern stereotypes redirecting passing cars into the isolated town of Pleasant Valley. And in case you miss the stereotype bit, we've got banjos playing and song lyrics full of loud yee-haws. If you think, hey, that actually is quite catchy, bear in mind it goes on for a good four and a half minutes and comes up again and again during the movie too. So brace yourself, by the time the film's over, you might really hate banjo music. The travellers who end up in the town include a young happy couple, a husband and wife having marriage problems, and a man and a woman who keep reminding everyone they aren't a couple, which means we all know they will be by the end of it. I know what you're thinking, isn't that Suzette and Detective Pete from Bloodfeast? And you'd be absolutely right, except of course, only we know that. So the cars pull into the town square and they're mobbed by crowds of people and they're offered hotel accommodation and VIP guest treatment all for free. The overloud and overfriendly mayor shouts about southern hospitality while other people poke and grope them and a boy waves a miniature hangman's noose in their faces. Of course, they find it all far too weird and creepy and drive the hell out of there. Alright, only kidding. That would make this a really short film. In fact, they seem quite amused by it all. But hang on, don't they have other commitments like work or family and no overnight luggage? Surely they can't just stay somewhere partway along their journey on a whim for a couple of days. Well, we'd like to stay for your celebration, but well, Miss Adams and I have to be getting on. He's not only a hitchhiker, he's a party pooper. Y'all want to leave? No, Pete! <laughs> of course not. Only two days, you'll have the time of your life. Thought you all didn't know each other. They ain't gonna leave, are they? Of course not. I tell you what, you got someplace else to be, is that it? Well, uh, I'm due at a teacher's convention in Atlanta. Tell you what, we went to a lot of trouble to get you all here. We don't give up so easy. You can say that again, Al. Yeah, as soon as you get to the hotel, you all send them a wire, tell them you'll all be there in a couple of days. We'll even pay for the wire, won't we, Oh, well, apparently they can, so that's all right then. What the mayor didn't tell them is the centenary celebrations involve killing off so-called Yankees in various gruesome ways. It's an act of revenge for a massacre a hundred years ago, and, spoiler alert, in a twist that M. Night Shyamalan would be proud of, the whole town and its inhabitants are actually ghosts that come back for a bit of a gory knees-up every hundred years. Yeah, it's basically Brigadoon, but with the love story replaced by violent murder. But the Hundred Years Ghost Town thing also creates a few problems for me. Why does the town have a motor garage when cars wouldn't have been invented in 1865? Battery-operated torches. 
phones in the hotel rooms and a payphone booth in the street. Most of these anachronisms are not just minor details you spot in the background, they're actually things used in the story. Anyway, back to the townsfolk we get to meet. Well, there's a boss hog type mayor who's loud and pushy. There's the comedy duo of Rufus and Lester who do a lot of gurning facial expressions and comic overacting that would make a children's panto look subtle. There's a woman in a low-cut dress who giggles a lot and an incredibly annoying blonde-haired child called Billy who can't help looking at the camera and basically shouts all his dialogue. I want to say, Billy! Billy, if you don't come here right now, you won't get the candy or the ride. But I want to say! Billy, right now, right now, or it'll be too late. Come on, get in, get in. Look, Billy, it's no fun driving here. I'll let you drive 70 miles an hour on the highway, okay? 70 miles an hour? Hot doggy! In this film, the gore isn't necessarily better, but it's certainly more inventive. Unfortunately, the payoffs are a bit disappointing. The first victim gets her arm chopped off with an axe, and when they start joyfully waving it around, it's obviously all rigid like a mannequin's one. The arm turns up later at the barbecue on the spit, where another outsider asks what it is, and is told it's symbolic. I would have thought the bigger question is, why is nobody choking from the toxic fumes of burning plastic? Anyway, someone else is pulled apart by four horses. Great idea, but all we really see is a kerfuffle, then a horse dragging an obviously fake leg on a rope. The most creative death is one based on the fairground dunk tank and should have been the most memorable and gruesome moment of the whole movie. A woman is tied down on a platform in front of a wooden tower with a huge boulder on top. People throw things at a target and if they hit it, the boulder's released and comes splat down on the victim below. Which of course it does, but instead of all the squished body parts and entrails you'd expect to see flying around, we get a woman with a styrofoam rock on her tummy and a trickle of blood coming from her mouth. There's definitely a bigger budget here than with Blood Feast, and it does look better produced. There's still some experimental camera work going on. We get a close-up face leering down at a funny angle again, and a scene transition where a character just walks right into the lens. The acting is still not great, and the plot is little more than some gory set pieces linked together with a thin story. Though, to be honest, the drive-in audiences who came to see this probably weren't too concerned about either of those things. The special effects might be a bit ropey, but at least they're creative and quite fun. Sound quality is still an issue. Background noise competes with the talking, and some overdubbed dialogue sounds like it's just been pasted in with no attempt to match the background sounds. The music is better than Blood Feast. There's a couple of proper songs this time, though they're repeated over and over, and I certainly could have lived without all the yee-hawing. Having said that, though, I did like how the relevance of the lyrics suddenly became clear at the end of the film. Here's another short burst of it so you can see what I mean. There's a story you should know from a hundred years ago, and a hundred years we've waited now to tell. Now the Yankees come along and they'll listen to this song, and they'll quake in fear to hear this rebel yell. And they'll quake in fear to hear this rebel yell. Yeah! Oh, the South's gonna rise again. The movie did actually get a remake. 
In 2005, which was 41 years after Herschel Gordon Lewis's was released, Robert England and Lynn Shea appeared in 2001 Maniacs, though I believe the comedy in that one is more intentional. That film got a sequel of its own, 2001 Maniacs Field of Screams in 2010. As for 2000 Maniacs, the original, again, it's not a good film. It's very hard to take seriously, and like Bloodfeast, a lot of the charm is in its failings. It's colourful, campy, and unintentionally comic. Always worth a watch with a group of friends and some beers. Though, I have to be honest, while I still enjoyed watching it, I do find Bloodfeast a more fun movie. And finally, the third film in this trilogy. We're about to show you a few scenes of this movie, which is called The Wizard of Gore. For those of you who appreciate this type of cinematic art, you will see the most startling scenes of their type ever filmed. But for those of you with heart conditions or who are with young and impressionable children, we ask that you turn around in your seats or leave this auditorium for the next two minutes. Thank you. I am Montag, master of illusion. Your eyes may see, but your mind may refuse to believe. Permit me to show you a few of the tricks I perform in the Wizard of Gore. The Wizard of Gore. This film will take its place in motion picture history as a milestone of extraordinary achievement. Never before have the weird, the eerie, the astonishing, the bewildering been shown in so stunning a film. Behind the facade of a normal world lies another world whose grisly mystery brings panic to some, satisfaction to others. An astounding achievement in bizarre, amazing theater, The Wizard of Gore. The Wizard of Gore is about a flamboyant magician whose stage act goes a step further than all the others. If he saws a volunteer in half, the audience sees it happening for real, with actual blood and guts. But at the end of the stunt, they see the victim get up and walk back to her seat completely unharmed. However, later in the evening the same women are found dead and their injuries match the ones witnessed on the stage earlier. Okay, first of all, let's look at the main characters. Montag the Magnificent wears a flowing black cape, white eyebrows that look like they've been tipexed, and a hammy theatrical style that makes even Fuad Ramses look subtle. He also talks loudly in very lengthy monologues full of long dramatic pauses. I am Montag, master of illusion. The fire of the laws of reason, a magician, if you will. We have daytime TV presenter Sherry Carson, who spends lots of time presenting Housewife's Coffee Break, and her boyfriend, sports journalist Jack, who spends lots of time sitting around shirtless. 
They go to the theatre to watch Montag's magnificent act, and Sherry is so impressed, she ends up going back to see it three times, and tries to get the magician on her show. Montag prepares for his first stunt by sawing a plank of wood in half, which should have put the fear of God into half the actors. After a gooey, gruesome sequence, his glassy-eyed volunteer is magically returned to normal, but later dies when she goes to a restaurant, and oops, her guts fall out which could have absolutely ruined the carpets, but luckily she chose the only table that had a plastic sheet clearly visible under it, so phew. Montag's next show features a spike hammer through the head sequence, which confusingly happens, then doesn't happen, then happens three times. It's clearly a fake head that's used, but it's actually not that bad, apart from one eye that's completely different to the other and looks a lot like a sheep or cow's eye. It did make me wonder if it was meant to be an homage to Un Chien Andalou, but maybe not. To be fair, the finger poking the eye around in its socket might not look realistic, but it did make me fidget in my seat. It sounds weird to say, but actually, some of these gory sequences go on for so long, they become less shocking and more boring. The dragged out campy monologues by Montag don't help either, and there are other issues with pacing that makes this harder to sit through the longer it goes on. The story's got an intriguing mystery at the centre of it, and the special effects are better than the other two films, but blimey, it's talky and very, very slow. Despite your delightful company, I find it difficult suppressing my yawns. As with the other two films, this has really bad sound quality too. The music is a bit better, but sounds like library music, and the choice feels a bit random at times. There are issues with the script too. Characters describe scenes that are completely different to what we've seen. Well, this time he punch-pressed a woman from head to foot, and as usual, she came through it in fine style. Why? All right, listen to this. A woman heard a man screaming in the apartment next to her. She ran in, and her neighbor, a Mr. Kowicki, was lying on the bedroom floor holding his wife's head. Now, the rest of her body was on the bed about five feet away. She looked like she'd been run over by a threshing machine. Actually, what we saw was a machine punch through the middle of her stomach. If the same injuries are supposed to return later on, why has her head come off? And why is her body mangled from head to foot? We see another victim hanging out of a car door with a trickle of blood coming from her mouth, and another looking much the same in an apartment. Well, he found her dead. The inside of her body was completely ripped out. Kramer was staked out at the other woman's apartment finds her dead the same way. Her insides were just all torn apart. Did I miss these scenes? Sherry's boyfriend Jeff is a sports journalist, but he seems to keep forgetting and behaves like a news reporter, shouting press press to get through the crowd to a death scene. And for some unknown reason, the police are allowing him, a sports journalist, to attend their meetings about the big murder case. Other things are a bit confusing too. What are the red filter scenes meant to represent, with coffins coming out of the ground and opening and Montag collecting victims' bodies? Why are they coloured red? Are they meant to represent dreams or fantasies or a different period of time? I get the bit about Montag using hypnosis, but it's shown in a very odd way. People seeing blood on their hands, the magician stunt switching back and forth between gore and then no gore, while the audience don't react at all until it's over and then they clap. I won't spoil the ending, but it's even more head-scratchingly weird and has a whole series of surprise twists. 
it needs to be seen to be believed. Or not believed. Most of the cast only appeared in this one film, the main exception being Ray Sager who played the title role. He also turns up in Lewis's other films, The Gruesome Twosome, The Girl, The Body and the Pill, Blast Off Girls, Just for the Hell of It, This Stuff Will Kill Ya, and The Gore Gore Girls. According to an interview, Sager was originally working on The Wizard of Gore as Key Grip, but after a few days they had to replace the main actor. Even though Sager hadn't auditioned for the part, or even read the script, he took it after Lewis offered him five times the money he'd be earning behind the camera. How do you know that at this second you aren't sleeping in your bed dreaming that you are here sitting in this theatre? Well, another five minutes of this, and I probably would be. If you were to watch a compilation of clips from this film, it would probably come across as a bad taste, bad movie, barrel of laughs. I really wanted to like this. It has the same director as Blood Feast, after all. It's got an unusual storyline, and there's actually a fun and interesting film in there somewhere. It's just lost among all the pacing issues and the talking. If only they'd edited it down to a 67-minute movie, like Blood Feast, I probably would have enjoyed it a lot. The Trilogy of Terror podcast, where we try three times harder to give you the willies. And it's not even my birthday yet. Well, that's what I thought of those films. In a moment, we'll hear what you had to say about them. But before that, here's a couple of promos for some horror podcasts I think are well worth checking out if you enjoy this one. Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host Duncan McLeish and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic old school horror favourites as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms to see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The Podcast Under The Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under The Stairs, signing off. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, necrophilia. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of. It's unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this movie. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept up. Little history doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you, you know, couldn't see that. 
because your brain's warped from watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was How did you watch this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. On to your comments. And first up, Andy Roberts. He gives us his thoughts on the films that make up Herschel Gordon Lewis's Blood Trilogy, which includes Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs, but also Colour Me Blood Red. Hi there, Gore. Andy Roberts here. We'll start with Blood Feast, which opens with a woman being slaughtered in the tub by a madman with talcum powder in his hair. Her leg is hacked off and stolen for nefarious purposes. The killer, Fouad Ramses, is putting together a blood feast for Mrs. Fremont, who wants something special for her daughter Suzette. He has in mind an Egyptian feast for the goddess Ishtar, which involves severed female body parts which he feels he must gather. We get a whole load of gory scenes here with tongue rippings, brain removals, and a vicious whipping of particular note as the BBFC frequently cut the scene out of some releases. There's some great lines in this, like Mrs. Fremont, upon discovering Ramsey's scheme to kill her daughter, simply states, I guess we'll have to have burgers. The police detective also has his only clever moment with, he died like the garbage he was, at the climax, as he simply fails to put the pieces together, even though he has evening classes in Egyptian mythology. Pity that Ishtar is actually a Syrian anyway, but still. This really was the first splatter movie to speak of, and I can imagine it to be quite shocking in its day. Of course, it ended up on the Video Nasties list in the UK, and was successfully prosecuted as obscene. Hard to believe, but yeah, it happened. 2000 Maniacs start off like an American country comedy, with heavily stereotyped Southern Americans luring Northerners to their town Pleasant Valley for a centennial celebration. The production values are noticeably higher than Blood Feast, although the acting ability is still limited. The town is noticeably awry, and celebrations start when a lady has her thumb hacked off with a knife and is then brutally dismembered with an axe and cooked for a barbecue. The exposition is thick and fast with the explanation of the town's intentions, and our hero Tom manages to deduce their game very quickly and begin their escape. Meanwhile, another of the tourists is bloodily pulled apart after horses are tied to his extremities, and another gets put into a barrel lined with nails and pushed down a hill, mutilating him. Our two heroes flee, which then leads to a very strange scene in which they wash mud off themselves with equally muddy water. The only tourist left in town then gets killed by a bizarre take on a water dunking amusement, but not before she performs the same struggling motion for a strangely long time. After this, the film kind of plods for the next half an hour, ending with Tom and Terry escaping and alerting the police. When they return to town, the town has disappeared, with the two main townsfolk revealing that they are in fact spirits who return every hundred years to get the revenge on the northern Yankees. It was a lot better made than Blood Feast, but it felt a bit limper in between the death scenes, and it reminded me a little of a lighter version of Dead and Buried. Colour Me Blood Red starts with an artist getting frustrated with his paintings and with his constantly interrupting girlfriend. After a critic trashes his work, he angrily pedalos in a small lake in a highly amusing scene. His motormouth girlfriend then moans for an absurd amount of the screen time until he snaps and stabs her in the eye with his brush, using her as his new Dulux match. Well, that's not tomato juice in her veins after all. We then get some padding involving some brainless teenagers going to the beach, clearly fodder for the artist character who spears two of them who borrowed his pedalos. A particularly grisly scene as the artist squeezing one of the victim's torn intestines in order to get some blood. He convinces another one of them to be the model for his next painting and somehow allows him to tie her up. Her friends soon discover body parts outside while searching for her, with a particularly horrid shot of a rotten head. The model is eventually rescued by her boyfriend, who accidentally shoots the artist in the face point blank. 
It ends on a brilliant line from one of her friends who exclaims, I guess I won't be taking up painting for a while. The killer is actually played with a good sense of madness, and I quite enjoyed his performance. He's quite similar to the killer in Headless Eyes. It felt like a good compromise between Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs, with slightly better pace and production values than the other two. Overall, the trilogy is really influential for its groundbreaking gore effects, but they have dated significantly. I still enjoy them though for their kitsch campness. I've had some feedback from Amanda Reyes from the Made for TV Mayhem podcast. It says, Hi Gore Blimey, loved your first episode on Trilogy of Terror. You were great and the subject matter was also wonderful. I'm all about Lamberto Barva, but I have to say, I think you've officially stolen my heart now that you're covering one of my all-time favourite filmmakers, Herschel Gordon-Lewis. I discovered Lewis in the very early 1990s, and I believe my first venture into one of his gore-filled B-movies was 2000 Maniacs. What stood out to me about it at the time was how colourful it was. I bought a copy of the gorgeous Clamshell VHS and was struck by the film's vibrancy. The acting was marginal, the gore was a bit surprising, and the look of it was super far out 60s. And that score. I actually have a copy of it on vinyl, which I unearthed at a local record store around the same time I bought the VHS. It was a double set and came with the music from Bloodfeast as well. I still love to give it a listen when I can. As a first-time Lewis viewer, the violence actually made me take a step back. The part where the hillbilly chops off the woman's arm was shocking to me at the time. Also, the barrel roll and quartering horses seemed more intense than I think even the director had intended. But I'm a softie. Then I discovered Blood Feast, which I don't think is as well done as Maniacs, but it certainly has its charms. One thing that both films had going for them was William Kerwin, who was actually the best actor in the room and also had a nice and likeable presence. I think he helped make Bloodfeast a bit more watchable. Also, Fuad. At one end you've got Kerwin, who is sincere in his efforts to be good in a film, and then you have Mal Arnold as Fuad Ramses, who, well, I'm not sure what he's doing, but I love it. His crazy shoe-polished eyebrows and wide-eyed mugging are just a treat. The combo of ham-fisted and earnest is what makes Bloodfeast so endearing. Finally, there's Wizard of Gore, which is my favourite Lewis film. For one, I have a hardcore crush on Ray Sager, who played Montag. Through all the shoe-polished white hair and eyebrows, a trait for Lewis it seems, there's a really cute guy trying to be extra menacing and looking like he's having a blast. Sega would go on to work on some great horror films like Terror Train, Prom Night 2 and the TV murder mystery Murder by Night. How can you not love this guy? I also thought the premise was really interesting. A man who hypnotises people into not realising they are dead. Crazy. I always thought Wizard had the chops for a decent remake, so it's kind of amazing that I haven't seen the 2007 Redux with Crispin Glover, another actor I love. No one is ever going to accuse Lewis of being Hitchcock, but despite all the weirdness and ineptitude, these are really fun films that I never tire of watching. I had the good fortune to meet his old producing partner, David F. Friedman, a few years before his passing. Not sure I'll be as lucky to meet Lewis, but he's on my list of people I adore and might not be able to speak to properly. He's the best. Okay, I'm done gushing. Take care. And here's some feedback from Dan from the Made for TV Mayhem podcast. The films of H.G. Lewis are legitimately like no other. The first one I saw was The Wizard of Gore. Some mates and I rented it from Video Ithaca during the first year away at college. We knew it would be gory, but we didn't realise some other things. One, how long the camera would sit on the scenes of gore as they went on and on long past the point where it looked like somebody was really getting carved up. 
Mannequins having animal guts lifted out of them with no pretense of being anything else astounded us. It was extremely gross, but in an unreal fashion. Two, we didn't realise that every single actor in the movie would be so terrible, including Montag. We'd seen bad acting in low-budget films before, but nothing like this. No one could act. And it was okay. Three, we didn't realise how odd the actual filmmaking would be. From those strange tinted scenes in the cemetery, to the plastic sheeting on the floor of the restaurant where the woman loses her guts, to the constant use of the most boring camera angles ever. H.G. Lewis was only interested in giving us gore and guts, nothing else mattered. So a few months later, when a friend and I rented Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs, we semi knew what to expect. Bloodfeast had wonderful over-the-top gore, non-acting, hilariously bad storytelling, Itar, Ishtar, and more boring camera angles, but it was shorter. People have said that 2000 Maniacs is an improvement over Bloodfeast. In what way? It has the same horrible acting, dull direction and storytelling from the mind of a two-year-old, and it's longer, with less gore. I've never fully warmed up to 2000 Maniacs, although it's my father's favourite Lewis film. He saw it at a drive-in when it came out and he said people screamed and cheered all the way through. Lewis is a filmmaker whose work I enjoy, but the perfunctory way he does everything but the gore scenes can leave me impatient. The perfect example of this is from his film Moonshine Mountain. There's a scene in that where a guy leaves his house, locks the door, goes to his car, opens the car door, starts the car, performs an elaborate three-point turn to get his car off the driveway, and drives away. It takes about a minute and it's one long take. If you can't appreciate all of that, Lewis's films might not do anything for you. Frankly, I love slow films, but that scene drove me up the wall. I popped it out of the VCR and watched Monster A Go Go instead. My favourite H.G. Lewis gore film is The Gore Gore Girls. My favourite H.G. Lewis film otherwise is the gloriously splendiferous Jimmy the Boy Wonder. That is one I can watch all day. Thank you, Daniel. Well, that's all for this episode. But before I go, I'd really like to thank those of you who sent in feedback as well as you guys who've written reviews in iTunes or played my promo on your own podcast. Thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for the music, the show must be go and Casa Bossa Nova, to Gentleman's Grindhouse Records for giving this show a home, and finally, and most importantly, thank you, yes, you, there in the headphones, for listening. Next time, the director under discussion will be Steve Miner. Yes, the bloke who put Jason Voorhees in a pillowcase in Friday the 13th Part 2. But everyone talks about that one already, so grab your 3D glasses and your yo-yo, because I'll be doing Friday the 13th Part 3 instead, along with horror comedy House, and then some shocks with Crocs in Lake Placid. And if you have any comments about these movies, or the director's other work, you can email them to me at trilogypodcast at gmail.com. And hope you'll join me again soon for the next episode. Till then, bye. Don't forget to visit and like the Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at I am Gorblimey. Or email us at trilogypodcast at gmail.com.
This looks like one of those long, hard ones. <laughs> 